Hello and welcome to Pillar Talk, the podcast published by the University of Queensland Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society, bringing you conversations about the three pillars of the humanities. In this final episode of Season 1 of Pillar Talk, Will and Ollie chat with Dr Cameron Murray. Cam is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Sydney's Henry Halloran Trust, specialising in the economics of property and urban development, environmental economics, rent-seeking and corruption. This conversation covers a lot of these topic areas, beginning with Cameron's work on corruption, before really honing in on the ongoing crisis of housing affordability, and Cameron's proposed solution, a Singapore-inspired policy he calls Housemate. This conversation is a follow-up to the 2022 Statecraft Autumn Lecture, which Cameron gave back in March last year on the topic, Why Politicians Must Pretend to Care About Cheap Housing. As with the lecture and podcast we did with George Brandis, you don't need to have seen that lecture to know what's going on here, but I recommend you checking it out anyway, as it was a real highlight of our academic program last year, and it clarifies a lot of the issues discussed in this episode. Now, as this is the last episode we're uploading from the first season of Pillar Talk, I just want to take a moment to thank both Will and Oliver for their efforts with the podcast in 2022. In my opinion, both did a great job hosting these episodes, and I'm particularly grateful to Will for his passion in getting the project up and running, and for his work in organising all the guests for what has been a fantastic first season. Will, Ollie, and the rest of the graduating cohort of 2022, thanks, congratulations, and all the best starting your careers post-PPA. With that aside, I give you Will and Ollie in conversation with Dr Cameron Murray. Welcome to the show, Cap. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay. So tell us a bit about like yourself, um, your areas of research, and... Yeah, uh, okay, I won't bore you too long with the whole story, but currently uh, I'm a research fellow at the University of Sydney in the okay. Henry Halloran Trust, and my research focuses on housing markets, and in particular, the dynamics of housing supply. So you guys probably know that um, there's a big debate now about why are house prices going up? Is it supply? Is it nasty regulations? Mm. Are developers the good guys who just want you to have a cheap house? Yeah. And so, you know, I hope you can sense my sarcasm there, but this is um, my focus of what really determines the rate of housing supply. What can we expect from the private property market? Mm-hmm. Um, especially given the 200 year recent history of just boom and bust cycles and unequal access to property. Uh, and what type of policies can we do to actually improve equality and access to housing Um, and I often think in parallel to healthcare. We've had all these debates before when your average person was on the street and couldn't pay for professional healthcare and and we know what we did there and all the successful countries solved unequal access to healthcare with a public option Mm -hmm. and yet that's not really on the debate. So, So that's what I do. I used to work for property developers. I've worked in the state government in regulation uh, for the Queensland Competition Authority. My PhD was on political favouritism and corruption. Um, but uh, And you know, the housing market and the planning system around that is also a very interesting topic if you uh, are interested in corruption in Australia. So was your PhD <laughs> political corruption within the housing market between developers and people in the council? or? Yeah, yes, basically. Okay. Um, look, it was much broader than that. So. Mm. 
Um, there are a few sort of separate threads there in my PhD. One was looking at political favoritism in the planning system and rezoning. Okay. And so the question I asked is, can I predict which landowner got favorably rezoned by an attribute of the landowner and not the land? So by comparing two properties side by side, same location, same property, same street, different number on the letterbox, one of them got a rezoning that might be worth millions and one didn't. So how, can I differentiate where that line was drawn based on the characteristics of the landowner? And it turns out in Queensland you can. Um, I initially was thought I was at a dead end because political donations weren't really doing the job. Mm. And I thought, that's weird. I would have just expected political donations equal favour. What I actually predicted it was the social network of the landowner. So when I mapped uh, the relationships between co-directors of companies, former employers, uh, family relations of um, former politicians, clients of lobbyists, and the, other, and, and the connections between that client, the lobbyist, and their other clients, and I mapped this social network. It had like 240,000 relationships between... 12,000 entities and if I got the landowners in my sample and I measured how central and well connected they were mm. that would essentially predicted everything so most people when they talk about corruption they talk about you know donations and um, all that but it's not actually the donations it's the network and the relation the relationships that you have between people and the political um, yeah, people and political power and people with economic power. Correct, that's exactly right. right. So that, that, and that's, that was the big lesson for me from doing this research was I, I really... Ec economists have this rent-seeking theory, which is essentially donations are a purchase of a favour. You know, it's an exchange like any other market exchange, but the puzzle there is donations are so small. We're talking something like $70 million nationally mm. in a year, but the political decisions that... That, that favoured industries get are worth billions and billions every single year. So the question is, how can you exchange uh, a seven, $70 million donation collectively mm. for, say, $7 billion worth of favours? You're, you're mm. sort of 100 times too small mm -hmm. for that exchange to make sense economically. Mm. And so what I realised is that donations are more like you know, the facial tattoos of the, um, <laughs> the political favouritism game. Yeah. They're, they're a costly signal. Yeah. They're basically saying, my credit is good, look at me waste money on you. Yeah. Um, you think that if I'm good enough to waste this money now, you just wait if you look after me what's coming. Mm -hmm. okay? so that's, and what was really interesting is that result I explained earlier about the uh, predicting who got the favours from their position in the network, mm. in that social network, the same result has been found in actual organised crime in the mafia in Italy and the Yakuza in Japan, that you, can, <laughs> you can predict the wealth of the members of those gangs yeah. from that same metric of how well connected they are. Wow. Yeah, so you, you know, now you've got to think about, well, that makes sense because organised crime is essentially organising a structure of exchanging favours without an external rural system mm -hmm. like no one's going to enforce a political favor for you in a court yep. right that's the same with the mafia no one's going to enforce that you owe johnny this because he you know took out your enemy for you mm. so you have to have other ways of enforcing the social structure and mm. so that was did, did you find out like that 
information about the Yakuza and the Mafia before or after you found out all this stuff about political corruption? Uh, after. after. I, I, I had read some research on it and I had read other research on the value of social networks. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the fact that there were these clean studies, the guy's name is Diego Gambetta. He's hmm. an Italian hmm. social hmm. scientist. Yeah, that... that he he got me down that path into actually unpicking what's been found. Yeah. yeah. So Cam, you've been saying recently in the news quite a bit for your kind of housing policy as kind mm-hmm. of being your kind of big talking point, I guess, at the moment, and this idea you have called of housemates. So if you just want to explain <laughs> what housemates uh, is in um, uh, yeah. as you like it, see, and kind of what problems it actually aims to solve and how it um, actually yeah, intends great. to solve them. Okay, Ollie. Um, so yeah, I guess most people have probably heard about housing in the news. Um, we just had an election cycle where both sides of politics uh, promised essentially the same thing, to unleash more money for first home buyers to buy housing. So on uh, the LNP side, it was about accessing super for a home deposit. On the Labor side, it was about shared equity. And you know, if you've read the news the last two years during this recent housing bubble, you would have heard a lot of stories, right? Housing out of reach. And so being a housing researcher, I've, I, you get to the points at, at some time where you think, okay, someone's just got to say something sensible now <laughs> because everybody keeps saying there's a problem because of all different reasons, right? Yeah. Everyone's got a boutique niche reason why the housing market's not working. For some people, it's low-income renters. For some, it's deposits for first-time buyers. For some, there aren't enough investors because we need more investors to buy new apartments to get more apartments. Yeah. You know, everyone's got a reason the market's not working, but they're all different reasons and contradictory ones. Mm. Um, and so I thought, you know, someone's got to get out there and say something sensible. And, and it's really difficult because if you look around the world, a lot of these problems are exactly the same. You go to North America, you go to Europe, people used to say, look at Germany's great stable housing market. And then, of course, the last five years, there's been a massive boom. Mm-hmm. In Berlin, there's a vote in Parliament to seize property from industrial landlords to literally compulsorily acquire all, this, all the industrial landlord apartments and rent them at a discount to the current tenants. Wow. Like, it is that serious. And we are there in our little Aussie media bubble going, oh, no, it's the local planning scheme. Oh, no, it's this. And I'm mm. like, come on, guys. Mm. And they're all blaming their political enemies. So my approach is, okay, everyone is having around the world these little internal political debates about housing. Mm. Is there someone we can actually look to and go, hey, their housing system is way better than ours. It's never perfect, but it's way better and we can all agree on that. Mm. And my answer to that was Singapore. It seems to be the only country in the world where collectively people who research this topic look to and go, do you know what? That's a better system than pretty much everyone else. So let me describe it. So housemate, you know, I I love these conjoined word policies, job keeper, job seeker, Medicare, (laughs) Centrelink, you you name it. That's how we have to do it in Australia. So housemate uh, is my, you know, Aussie policy name for essentially what's the housing development board in Singapore. And in Singapore, they went from 20% home ownership in the 1960s to 89% today. Over what period of time was that? Over that, that's 60 years, just 60 about. years, wow. Our home ownership peaked in 1972 at 71%, and it was 65% in 2016 at the, cent, at the last census. 
So we went backwards, about 7% in home ownership, and they mm. went up by a factor of four and a half. Mm. <laughs> right? Not only that, the typical Singapore couple in their 20s has the right to buy a brand new dwelling from the Housing Development Board, which is a public developer, at construction cost, with a loan that, from a pool of lenders at a regulated price, and they can use their compulsory savings for the deposit and for the repayments, and for most young Singapore couples, they can do this and have no out-of-pocket costs above their compulsory savings and buy a home. And that's been the system for 60 years. In fact, I haven't been to Singapore to check these out, COVID, you know, and the travel restrictions, but I have spoken to people in their HDB homes and I have spoken to HDB and many other sort of related consultants who do work there. And the interesting thing is everyone just expects it. It's, it's totally different politically to here. Here, we expect an ambulance to be available and a public hospital to look after us when we're sick. Mm -hmm. We expect it. And it's politically expedient to spend money on that stuff, mm. cut ribbons at new hospitals mm. and get votes. Yeah. That's what it's like for housing in Singapore. Right. Everybody expects better houses for their kids. I want it, I want mm. this. And that's, you know, it's completely different. And so that's mm. why 90% of people in Singapore live in an HDB dwelling. Because for the last 60 years, everyone's had that right to do it. The very rich still buy, you know, condos, foreigners still buy very, very expensive dwellings. And, and to give you an idea of the relative prices here, so a new HDB dwelling um, costs between $80,000 and $400,000. So $80,000 for a studio, brand new, $400,000. A Singapore dollar is roughly one-to-one -one with Aussie dollar. An equivalent in the private market of that, say, $400,000 brand new three-bedroom apartment is about a million dollars. If you are a low-income household, in addition to those low prices, you can get a cash subsidy of up to $60,000 as well. So there's an income contingent subsidy that goes down as your income goes up and it goes towards the capital cost. So essentially, everybody just gets a home. It's like a birthright. Mm. There's, a bit of, there's a bit of a trick to it. Um, there's a little bit of social engineering that goes on. You have to be a couple. They only introduced a singles uh, track in the last 10 years, and you have to be 35 on a, as a single. So it's a very pro-family thing. You have, okay. If you're 21 and in a couple, you can apply. Uh, it's a little bit tricky when you separate. Um, I've spoken to people about that. Um, you have to essentially sell it back to HDB and they tell you the regulated price that they'll give you to get it back. Um, there's also racial quotas in every <coughs> development there. So there's Indian, Malay, Chinese, etc. And um, each new development, you, you, you have to essentially declare your, your race and apply for the quota of your race. And the same thing when you trade it on the second-hand market. So there's the second-hand HDB market that operates in parallel to the private market and only qualified HDB Singapore res permanent residents who don't own other property can buy in that secondary market or in that parallel market. And the reason those prices stay down is because there's this new option anchoring it. So the HDB is always producing new dwellings at that regulated price and anyone who buys in that second hand parallel market 
it's not going to overpay because they can just show up and get a build to order mm. brand new dwelling at a few hundred thousand mm. it's brand new and they can fit it out how they like so would you say that the public housing option provides competition in the housing market yeah exactly and in fact so much competition that that 90 percent of people use it in mm. singapore yeah. and and that's i guess why we're not having this type of debate because if you are a pro property developer, you don't want a public competitor who's offering your potential buyers a discounted alternative. Mm -hmm. Banks don't like uh, offering regulated uh, loans mm -hmm. to first home buyers. Um, so this real estate agents don't like it because they don't get to be involved. You essentially show up at a bureaucrat's office and you pick, pick the apartment you want and mm -hmm. that's over. You don't have to pay for auctions and stuff. It's just totally boring, cheap <laughs> yeah. paperwork. Um, so yeah. yeah, you you mentioned there of just our interest um, that the Singaporean model how you have to be a couple and you they have things like racial quotas. Yep. If this was stay with this, I don't believe at least politically that those kind of options would necessarily fly if you were to put it into Australia. But is the the system would still be um, very much functional without those. Yeah, that's kind right. Of conditions? Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. You you want to. My attitude to this is, you look at a good system mm. and you look at what elements are actually doing the good things because every system evolves through local political happenstance, mm. right? And you go, okay, these are the key economic elements that we need, whatever variation we adopt here. Mm. And so for me, that was, well, we don't need racial quotas. Australia is the world's best at integrating everybody. Mm. You know, maybe in certain areas you have a focus on indigenous housing to really just get, get a head start in some regions, mm. getting people into their own home. But, you know, that's not an important element to it. I've also uh, proposed that anyone at a particular age, I've increased the age to 24 in my proposal, but I'm, you know, it, it's, mm. it's some arbitrary number. You can't just let everyone show up. You need to... Um, especially when you don't have the system started yet, you need to deal with the queuing issue because there'll be a backlog here yeah. of people who would qualify for this who haven't been able to buy a house in the private market. And you can't, you can't ramp up this system instantly. So you have to deal with this big queuing issue. What happens in Singapore for new dwellings? So in a project, if a particular type of dwelling is oversubscribed, um, so you sort of buy off the plan, if it's oversubscribed and you go into a lottery to get your... So you wanted a three-bedroom, um, you know, from your racial quota in this new project that we've been advertising as built to order. Okay, we've now got 80% of them sold or committed. Mm -hmm. But for the three-bedroom in yours, it's actually twice as many people have applied for three bedrooms as, as we're going to build. Mm -hmm. Now, they might modify the design a little. They can do that. But essentially what happens is you get a, a, a ping pong ball in your little lottery and, and they, they pull out those who've applied. Mm. And if you miss out on the lottery, you get two ping pong balls the next time that you apply, yeah. right? So it's quite fair in terms of dealing with that queuing issue. Yeah. And if you get drawn from a lottery and say no, uh, I think you, you get a lower quota in the next one. It's obviously not ping pong balls, it's electronic, so you can yeah. halve the have your probability of being drawn if you're in another quota situation. Yeah. Okay, so one of the kind of criticisms that might be made, especially maybe from, say, like an ideological point of view, is that why don't we necessarily just leave this to some form of free market or that it's standing in the way of these 
um, regulatory and zoning laws yeah. and why don't we just let um, supply equal demand and, and take it from there? Yeah, well, supply does equal demand. Like, that's a definitional thing. Yeah. So, so we've done that and we've yeah. got what we want. And you can say, you know, regulations are a problem and I, I will certainly agree that a lot of planning rules um, are no longer useful. Their, their purpose has been superseded by events and mm. we should definitely change them. So you're going to get a lot of agreement from me on that. My, my response, though, is that you know, town planning and these regulations were invented in the early 20th century. The earliest 20th, 20th century was a century, essentially a period of a huge upheaval after multiple, multiple property cycles. The best-selling English language book in the 1890s was Progress and Poverty by Henry George. Right? He essentially said... Isn't it weird that we are the richest we've ever been, yet we still have poverty and we have super rich people? The divide seems to be that the rich people own all the property and the poor people have to pay someone else to exist on planet Earth. Because mm. they have, you know, they've got nowhere to live for free. Mm. And so, you know, hey, if you want free markets, you're gonna, you, you will get exactly those outcomes. Slums for the poor. You know, the whole point of Singapore's system is they had a free market there were heaps of slums and they said, you know what, we can't be a rich country and have all of our working class shitting in the gutter. <laughs> That's quite literally, <laughs> I, I listened to an interview today, mm. they use more sophisticated language, I mean, <laughs> that my Aussie, that's my Aussie interpretation, but yeah. literally, if we want to mm. be rich, this is not going to happen, we mm. have to just build people homes because the free market got us here. Mm. Mm. And a lot of those like arguments for the free market, I guess, come from um, the argument that you know free markets are competitive and competitive competitiveness drives um, all these public goods and is much better for society. But I guess what you're trying to get at, correct me if I'm wrong, yep. is that a free market is always not is or is not always a competitive market. That's a great point. Yeah. Okay. So so a couple of things. Yes, the property market. You know the word property used to be synonymous with monopoly. Mm-hmm. Like, they're the same words. We now think of it differently. The board game Monopoly was invented to demonstrate that property is a monopoly, <laughs> right? Um, so, so, like, um, the, the point is with, you know, we, probably a better way to think this through is that property is not land. It's not like we're producing dirt. Mm. Property is a system. We've carved up the three-dimensional space on planet Earth mm. and we've told the people who have a piece of paper I will shoot anyone who comes on this foot on your behalf <laughs> and everyone else True. we've said sorry you can't go in anywhere unless you negotiate a price with them okay. to, to call us off it's a little bit like the taxi license system we essentially created a taxi license system for three-dimensional space if you've got the license you win if you don't bad luck you've got to get it from someone who's got it first investor mm-hmm. so the idea that that there's competition in the system of allocating property I think is flawed Sure, there is competition and innovation in construction of putting objects inside other people's three-dimensional cubes that they own. That's fine. Okay? I, I'm not proposing in Housemate, for example, that we need a public builder. There are many large builders who are capable of putting up buildings, as they've been doing. Um, so I think, yeah, that's a real issue. And look, in healthcare, you could have made the same arguments, and we literally had this debate. There's a great book I was reading recently about the Australian political debate um, in the 70s prior to Medicare. Mm. 
and people made all the same arguments. They're like, oh, it's just a free market. You know, you can rely on, on insurance associations to emerge and poor people, they'll just pay into it and there'll be no argument when they get sick, if they're really sick and need to be paid or not. It'll just work, the free market. And of course we know in, in healthcare, there are huge, huge information problems, huge monopoly problems with access to pharmaceuticals. Um, you know, especially in, in pharmaceuticals, like we, we literally create a monopoly for them with, mm. with um, intellectual property, right? Mm. And copyright and all those variations of, of the intellectual property system. Would you say that the, so health and housing are both on the demand side, quite inelastic? Because people need health, they need housing. Would you say that that um, that bargaining power is a functioning is a function of inelasticity? I would say the bargaining power comes from your outside option. That's how I like to think about it. Mm-hmm. If I'm a sick, poor person, what are my options? Be sick and die. <laughs> like, like literally, there is one medical treatment yeah. that works. Someone owns the property right to that and they've secured access to it with yeah. essentially, you know, the police force. Yeah. So what are my options? Well, I pay everything, right? Mm. So I've got no outside option. So that's how I think of housing as well. What are your options here? Well, I either rent money from a bank and pay a landlord. I rent the house directly from the landlord. Whichever, all the landlords own everything. I can't, there's no outside option here. So the whole idea of a public home ownership system like Singapore is to say, hey, in Australia, where we adopt it, remember, all of the current dwellings are essentially owned by private owners, so we're not going to acquire them. That's going to already exist, but we're going to create a new option. So we don't have to supply everybody, we just have to give people an alternative. And now you'll have the option of, hey, I can go and pay that price for a private dwelling, and when I get it, I can get all the capital gains, and I can sell it to whoever I want, and I can do whatever. But if that price is too ridiculous, I've got a public option sitting here. Mm. And so I can anchor that and provide an alternative to take the heat out of that private system. So if so, maybe on the opposite end of Ollie's question of why not just free markets, why not just make the whole housing market completely government-owned? <laughs> well, it's just about... Well, um, <laughs> in, some people, depending on your sort of um, philosophy, some people call the public home ownership system in Singapore public housing and go, hey, that's all just public housing. That's government capital, right? Mm. How socialist are they? I find that, you know, labelling stuff not very helpful because at the end of the day, the person who lives there can do whatever they want. They can repaint it. You buy it, you can buy it with um, a new built-to-order dwelling with no fitted-out bathroom and no internal doors, just a concrete cube, and, and get someone else to fit it out, however you want. That, that sounds like ownership to me, right? Mm. You can sell it to whoever, whoever you want. Mm. You don't have to pay rent to anyone. They, so and the only catch is, which is I don't think a catch, is that uh, Singapore has this 99-year leasehold system. So freehold is essentially a property right that says, we promise to enforce your right to this cube of three-dimensional space in perpetuity, mm. and leasehold says we promise for a fixed period of time. And so in Singapore, they're 99 years. So the first leasehold um, HDB dwellings from the 1960s have already had 60 years. And so there's only 40 years left. And the discussion is now being had of what happens after 99 years. Do you have to repurchase your dwelling from the government? And my conversations with people involved in HDB is that that's political suicide. You will essentially just roll it over 
mm. for another 99 years. If your building's not getting redeveloped and you, you know there's an agreement there for redeveloping old buildings, you get relocated, then they'll give it to you. Now, what's interesting is that's exactly what happened in the ACT. The ACT has 99 year leasehold title. Mm. And so 1910 was ACT was formed. So quite a few of them have just rolled over. And rather than you know, strictly enforce the 99 years, they just said, okay, $265 fee will send you another 99 years. Because right? you can't just, you're going to literally, as that yeah. rolls over, you're just going to be taking everyone's homes off them. And remember, <laughs> we're in a political environment where everyone expects you to give them a free home. Yeah. It's a complete political impossibility. Um, so anyway, that, I don't know how we got sidetracked on that, but that comes up a lot yeah. in the conversation about, well, is Singapore all public housing because it's a leasehold? Yeah. And I say, well, it's a, it's a publicly constructed market. Right. right, with some set of rules about who can yeah. participate. So there's market forces involved with it. There actually is this concerns right now that the second <clears throat> secondary market, so the trades in HDB dwellings, the secondary market is actually getting inflated. Mm. Right, so people are paying a really big premium to get an existing one rather than wait for a new one, mm. um, and the interest rates are low, and so you, you, you're getting some of those normal pressures in this. Mm essentially public housing system mm. um, because it's so much like a market and they're right. trying to anchor that price but there's, mm. you know, there are limits. Right, okay. A lot of things with government and, and, ha- and housing policy, you're looking at the incentives for different actors. Uh-huh. So obviously now if we end up doing this kind of house may I uh, project, there's the government's going to end up essentially owning, developing a lot of housing mm-hmm. and there's going to be the secondary market. Does this create some form of um, adverse, say, necessarily incentive for government to... Um, kind of keep maybe prices in the secondary market high if they're ah. building and selling or is that an issue that's posed because they know that they'd be because that's a form of revenue generating for government that then there isn't an incentive to have cheap, super cheap housing yep that's a good point so let me talk about the ACT for a second because the ACT has a public land developer called the Suburban Land Agency as they've had since the beginning so all land that was subdivided in the ACT mm. was done by a public agency and the issue that they have is there's this tension between using this agency to maximise the present value of their stream of land sales, just as a Stockland or land lease would, any large developer, mm-hmm. and supplying new housing and keeping price down. And now I've spoken to political advisors in the ACT. I was doing research there uh, about six years ago. They, they had introduced this land rent scheme, which was you know, an attempt at discounted access to land for first home buyers. And I, I didn't know that they had this public developer at the time. And I just said to them, why are you contriving this scheme so that first home buyers can pay a higher price when they're literally buying it off you and you can sell it to them at any price you want? Yeah. And he said to me, this advisor, it would be political suicide to crash the value of people's houses <laughs> by flooding the market with new land. So that is a, the real tension, I think, in all housing um, policy is that 65% of people are households, uh, homeowning households, 18% are landlords, and the Australian housing market's worth $10 trillion. So it's not the tension, I think, that you're suggesting, Ollie, that, um, that the government will want more revenue when they, than when they operate this. Like, I think, in general, talk about governments having an incentive to get more revenue are politically misguided because if you look at all the tax breaks they're willing to give, it shows they're clearly not interested in raising revenue. Mm. (laughs) 
right? That, that revenue is the last thing on their mind. Yeah. Their mind is keeping interest groups happy no matter what happens to the budget. Like, the, you know, as a good rule of thumb, if a politician's talking about the budget or an effect of a policy on the budget, it's because they don't want to do it. If they're not talking about the effect on the budget, it's because they do want to do it. Because the budget <laughs> is a, an excuse to, to not do what you don't want and do what you do want. Um, so I think it's important to keep that in mind. Like the governments could raise billions and billions from you know, taxing miners, charging for rezoning, tightening up tax laws, yeah. and they choose not to. Yeah. They choose not to because they don't give a toss about revenue. Yeah. They want to keep people happy who need to be kept happy. Yeah. So I think it, it is, my idea of copying Singapore is all about this political transition. Mm. And the reason to propose this above any other housing policy is because you can see from what was announced in this election, no one wants to bring the price of houses down, right? Because that's, that's bad politically, right? So what you've got to do is go, well, there's a certain group we need to look after, first home buyers, we essentially want to give them money to get them into this other group of homeowners who like high prices, which is what we're doing. Um, so there's the tension. My, my, my proposal for housemate is to somewhat sidestep that issue of crashing the housing market by making houses cheaper and by saying, hey, there are 10 million dwellings in Australia, I'm not gonna to touch them. I don't wanna manipulate the price of your dwelling. All I'm doing is giving first home buyers a different option. You're pro-competition, aren't you? You keep telling me the supply side needs attention. That's all I'm doing. You guys trade your existing 10 million dwellings at any price you want. I'm just starting this little baby parallel housing system here on my own, I'm just a little guy, and that's how I see mm. the pitch. Because in Australia, this system's not gonna be 90% of dwellings, right? Because already 100% of dwellings are probably on. It might end up in 10 years being 10% of dwellings, or in 15 years. But remember, 30% of our households are renters. If, we, if, if most of those people get off the rental market and into this, we're going from sort of 35% renters, 65% homeowners, to 25% renters, 70, 10% um, housemate owners and 65% private owners. And now a brief word from our platinum sponsor, KPMG. KPMG provide a range of professional services for business, nonprofits, and government, including consulting on the design and implementation of key government policies. They offer two programs that might interest you, their 12-month graduate program and their four to eight-week vacation program for students in their penultimate year. Both are fantastic opportunities for anyone interested in consulting or in building their skills at solving complex policy problems. For more information, check out this episode's description or reach out to the UQPPE Society and we can put you in touch with one of our contacts at KPMG. So, those people, those political interests, like saying that, oh, this would bring down housing prices and thus the net wealth of a lot of people... Mm -hmm. What would be the economic effects of bringing down all those uh, everyone's house price? Uh, where we may find out soon enough, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, look, I, I don't think it is a good idea to, to crash the value of the biggest asset class in the country, mm. right? The financial markets and the real economy are linked. You know, there's a great analogy of walking your dog on the lead. The financial markets um, 
uh, other person and the real production is the dog. Like, they can move independently, but at the end of the day, if I start walking this way, my dog's <laughs> coming with me, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and, and if the financial markets completely crash, um, and people, you know, we, we'll have a big, a big recession. So I think that's true. Which brings me to another sort of intellectual hobby of mine or an interest is about why we try and stabilize the macroeconomy with monetary policy that operates via the housing market predominantly. So we've got this, we've all just collectively agreed somehow in the mid 90s, the whole world just sat down and said, you know what, Milton Friedman or some monetarist, they're right. I think the best thing we can do to stabilize these boom and bust cycles that we've seen for hundreds of years in the capital system is to manipulate the value uh, of a special type of bank account, the central bank that banks have funds in when they transfer money between each other. And with a bit of luck, when we do that, people will pay a different amount for houses. And with a bit of luck, they will buy more boats or do renovations. And that's how we'll stimulate the economy. And I find it completely bizarre. I find it bizarre that we did this during COVID. Uh, we had a temporary disruption and we said, well, the best thing for that is although no one can go to work and it's this temporary downturn, why don't we make it cheaper to buy a house and hope that people go and do renovations and buy boats or whatever the case may yeah, be? When the economy was frozen. And I'm like, well, <laughs> well, well hang on. <laughs> How is this meant to work, right? No one's allowed to go to work. And you're, you're like, that's the best way? I'm like, yeah, sure. Put some money in people's bank accounts to smooth out things. But you didn't need to essentially globally coordinate to trigger the you know, biggest housing boom since the 2000s boom mm-hmm. during this sort of shutdown period. So anyway, I just find it odd. And now mm-hmm. the whole world's like, oh, whoopsie-daisy, house prices went the wrong way. How did we know that would happen? I'm like, it's literally in the economics textbooks. It's on your Reserve Bank website. Monetary policy works by reducing the value and increasing asset prices like housing. When people have higher value housing, they borrow against that and spend money on things. I'm like, it's literally what you're trying to do. Did you not even read what's on your own website or in the textbooks? And now we're turning around and going, whoopsie daisy, sorry, the best way we're going to deal with this boom is to make your mortgage more expensive. That's how we're going to solve this problem. I'm like, come on, guys. (laughs) You're doing it again. Is this really the best way to do it? We want more un- people unemployed, so we're going to make your mortgage more expensive. With a bit of luck, you'll be paying more interest to the bank, so you won't go on holiday and all those people who work won't be employed because, you know, there's too many people employed. The best way to deal with that is your mortgage. And it blows my mind mm. when you try and say it in plain English, but that's where we're at. And perhaps after this cycle, economists will start having that conversation a little mm. bit more yeah. um, because this current housing boom was engineered. And in 2020, in May, I did a podcast where I said, hey guys, I know the banks are stress testing and you know, there's a lot of talk in the media of prices falling 20 to 30%, but I reckon they're more likely to rise 20 or 30% in the next 18 months than fall 20%. So just literally don't think you're going to wait around and get a super cheap house at the end of this year. This was May 2020, first week of May, right in the middle of COVID. And it's interesting because on social media, everyone's like, is this the crap our universities are turning out these days? He should hand in his degree. What kind of nonsense is this? Mm. And I'm just like, hey, like, if you take the mortgage rate from 4% to 2%, you've, you've halved the cost of borrowing money. Mm. 
borrowing money is way cheaper than borrowing a house and renting right now mm. in the whole country. How are people not going to do that? Mm. Why would I not do that? It's essentially free money. I did it. Mm. All my mates did it. <laughs> in fact, in fact, we had a, like 171,000 first home buyers in the financial year, you know, June 2020 to 2021, which is about double the average of the five years prior. So a lot of people did that. Mm. And now we're just like, oh, you know, the boom was because of supply. Like you just made money cheap. Mm. Um, so anyway, that's you, another rant of do you mine. Think, do you think of the, um, you know, the likely interest rate hikes that were yet to see from the RBA will um, bring down house prices? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, they certainly will eventually. Mm-hmm. And the question is when. Ha- has it started now? Is this ter- like, so we've just seen the daily... Um, the daily index turned down in, in Brisbane again. It's been down in Melbourne and Sydney for the last couple of months. Uh, if you look at Auckland, prices are down. If you look in Canada and Ontario, they're down in, in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. If you look at um, regional towns in the United States, they've rolled over. So the question is, is this just a bit of a correction from the heat and in the market? and Or is this the start of a bigger fall? And the question then is, how much are a price fall are we willing to accept? Because remember, if prices fall 30%, it's, it's going to be financial chaos, right? Yeah. Mm. So how much are we willing to accept? And I, my suspicion is that if interest rates keep going up, um, they will be coming down in 2023, sometime in that calendar. Coming year. back down. Already by the end of 2023. So... At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what the interest rate mm. is, right? So paying a high price with a low interest rate is kind of cheap and paying a low yeah. price with a high interest rate, you know, if you don't have the money and own the property yet, it's, it's, mm. you know, if, if you're relying yeah. on finance, it's not a huge difference. Mm. Um, so I see a lot of parallels to 1987 to 1990. Now, yeah. I, was, I was a child then, so I don't remember it, but I have a, looked at a lot of data. And, and in that period, we increased interest rates by about double. Yeah from around 10 to 17, over three years. And we had a bit of a boom during that rise. So it's a similar point, we've just had a boom, now we're gonna double the interest rates. But it didn't happen instantly. It still took a couple of years for panic to set in the market and trigger the early 90s recession. In which case, interest rates came back down from 17%, mortgage rates down to seven or 8% within a few years. So I see some parallels with that. So the question for me now is not will prices come down, the question is when Mm. and what our reaction to that will be. Mm. Will we let them fall and not drop interest rates to zero? Mm. I have a prediction out there that in the second half of this decade, my mortgage rate will be less than 1%. So because in Europe during COVID, you could get a mortgage for less than 1% interest. (laughs) <laughs> and my fear is if there's a big crash in the next few years yeah. that because we're so sold on monetary policy as the thing to do mm. and of course all the institutions globally want to be seen as doing their job they don't you know it's not the time to debate does this work you know is monetary policy the right thing can we have a deep philosophical debate about how we should manage the economy no my job is to look like I'm doing something in a crisis mm-hmm. This is the something I've been given as a central bank. I'm going to engineer the cash rate to negative as it was in Europe and you're going to get a mortgage rate under 1% mm-hmm. because I've got to be seen to dealing with this big crisis. So that's a prediction. 
who knows? Like, I'm, I'm not saying it's the thing that's going to happen, but I'm saying it's a possibility that few people are thinking that's a higher probability than you might suspect. Mm. Right. Yeah. Do, do you think that when House, or when um, House, they may or may not, um, House prices crash, do you think that's a perfect time to implement something like Housemate? Very good point, Will. <laughs> Yeah, so during COVID, I said, hey, if we're about to have a huge economic disruption and no one's going to buy off the plan housing and mm. all these developers are going to panic because mm. of literally yeah, every, every apartment's half a million dollars of cash flow that they can finish and if no one's going to buy them, it doesn't look good. I proposed, hey, we should have a central housing bank. Like the central bank smooths out things in the monetary markets, the central housing bank in a downturn could buy the whole building off the plan for existing projects that are underway at a discount to take all that risk from that developer mm. and keep all the construction going and all the you know consultants employed and everything. Yeah. And you would get you know, a block of 150 apartments at 20% below market in one go and keep all those people employed and smooth it out. Mm. Yeah. So everyone, of course, ignored that, but and instead just gave money to everyone to go and build homes at Home Builder, which is fine. Um, but I definitely think yeah, that is a way that housemate can operate. Is also being countercyclical in terms of okay, wow. the private market's gone down. We're acquiring a bunch of sites, and we're just we're we're rushing through our backlog of people. That kind of leads me to my next question. So. Reading a book at the moment, House of Debt by Amir Sufi and Atif Man, and they um, <clears throat> give an outline as to the reasons why the GFC occurred and why it was so, um, why it was so much worse than say the dot com bubble, which was mm -hmm. just like a little blip in the economy, mm -hmm. basically, compared to the GFC. And their reasoning is that, um, I guess, a simplified reasoning is that um, household debt um, that goes into getting a mortgage and paying off um, the mortgage and all that um, fuels these housing bubbles that when they pop just spreads throughout the economy, causes um, massive declines in spending and yep. thus employment and then just totals the economy. Yep. Um, do you think, how do you think that housemate, do you think that housemate would... Um, uh, stop us from entering those really, really bad recessions. And if I might add, um, Australia's worst recession in the 1890s was due to a housing boom. Yeah. So it seems to be quite a recurrent theme. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very, very interesting question. And you've, I, I think in the, in the 19th century, in that 1890s boom, mm -hmm. I don't think credit was quite as accessible as it is these days, especially for your owner-occupier type mortgage. This was more of, you know, lots of wealthy people trading with each other and, you know, their wealthy mates at the banks lending for, you know, speculation on all sorts of things, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so credit as a, as a key feature, yeah, I think it's a feature. I think more broadly, it's just about um, how much of the economy is tied to this one asset class. So mm -hmm. in housing, right, um, if a huge number of people have moved houses, so if you've got housing turnover at 5% a year 
for five years during a boom. So 25% of people have bought their house in the last five years. Right? That's a huge proportion of the economy. It's a huge proportion of people who are at the age where um, they're spending a lot in the economy. So they're between 30 and 50, whatever their age is, right? Retired people, you know, they just have low and stable spending. Um, so you've got this huge proportion of this middle of the economy whose spending is very responsive to the value of their assets, mm, yeah. right? So when they feel poorer and their house has gone down and their mortgage rate's gone up, they can change their spending. You know, your typical household, you know, might go from 80,000 a year to 45,000. Multiply that by 25% of households, mm-hmm. it's a huge part of the economy and mm-hmm. it's just stopped because no one's spending their money anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think at this time in the US, the places that had the big 2000s bubble and crash are much better off because they've worked through all their debts. The, the proportion of the house, housing stock value that was equity and not mortgage mm-hmm in the United States uh, reached one of its lowest points ever about four years ago. Mm. So they'd come down from one of their highest points prior to the financial crisis and house prices had gone up and people had worked down and paid those mortgages for a decade. And so they're in a reasonably good position. Australia is relatively flat for that decade. So we're sort of going up from a higher level. So I think not only, uh, so I think Australia's just, um, the string is pulled a little bit more tighter, so, so I think when something turns, uh, the effect on spending in Australia will be bigger this time than in the US. Mm. However, I think our central bank is gonna put interest rates below zero, and we will, we will see if people believe them this time that they're gonna stay low, right? Because they've just yeah. put them low, now we're all going to be caught out with interest rates going up. They're going to put them down to zero again. And we'll, we'll try and refinance and we'll get our fixed rates if that happens. But I don't think anyone's going to trust that they'll stay low again. So it's going to take a while for that to sort of bail out the economy. Mm. Um, so anyway, uh, that's my story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting one on to you talking, uh, obviously, about housemates and transferring the Singaporean model. But the Singapore is basically a city-state. Um, yep. And essentially, it has a lot of um, high-rise apartment blocks, mm-hmm. and say the kind of the outer areas of the island, mm-hmm. especially. So, you've got this kind of large resident, and people in Australia typically either um, don't want to live, or then you don't yep. live in that style of um, massive apartment block in the outskirts of the city of, of city areas. It's yep. almost not a thing. So, how when you say about housemates and what kind of property do you consider being a part of the scheme? Is it through quarter acre blocks yeah, yeah. for um, uh, apartment living? Or... No, I think, I think, so some people say, oh, you can't copy Singapore. Um, it's going to be much harder here because no one wants to live in apartments. Mm-hmm. I'll say, but it's much easier here because we don't have to build apartments. You can build whatever you want, wherever you want, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can just go out to one of these big land developers and go, ah, oh, those next 5,000 are ours. Done. You know, you've got 5,000 blocks. So, so the way I see it is essentially... Housemate would have to have geographic diversity. Mm. Okay, you're going to have to have state bodies looking at <coughs> regional towns and, you know, having this um, interact interrelationship with the market that private property developers do and being somewhat responsive. Um, but essentially, you would have apartments in the inner city, townhouses in the suburbs, and detached houses in rural towns and on the fringe. So essentially, you'd be like um, 
one increment smaller than the average of the area. So if there's a lot of detached houses in like, you know, Mount Cravat or whatever, you go, okay, we're doing townhouses there. You know, and, and you might, you do apartments in the inner ring suburbs and then you know, Caboolture, you do detached house subdivisions. Mm. That's fine. And you can even do, here's free land, you build your own house. Um, because I was already going to charge you construction costs, yeah. but I, I don't need to, you can do it yourself. Yep. You can just go in the, in the lottery, here's a subdivision, 40, 40 blocks, mm. okay, um, go, go for your life. Mm. Uh, so I, I actually think it's, it's, it's easier in terms of we don't have to reclaim land, we don't have to design really fancy big buildings, but it's harder in terms of we have to manage um, the demand in different towns and locations. Mm. So I think that that's the trade-off here. Mm. And kind of on the last point we have here for our housemates is obviously to touch a little bit before political feasibility. Yeah. Is that do you realistically say with I don't know a five to ten year time period ever see anything like housemates either entering mainstream political discussion or um, actually becoming a reality? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think <clears throat> I'm pretty optimistic in general. Let me give you an example. <laughs> Look, I, I think we're a rich country. We can handle house, housing going up and down. Um, you know, when there's a political crisis, you will see you know, $60 billion checks being written by the government, as we saw in COVID. So I'm, I'm not worried that <laughs> things won't happen. My question is, what crisis mm. will lead us to doing something different? Mm. Because that's how you get political change. That's how it got up in Singapore, right? It's was not by accident. What was a crisis in Singapore? Uh, it was the slums, the crime, and the fires in the slums. Okay. And they're like, you can't just, we can't do this, right? Yeah. You know, we're, we're trying to be a developed country and mm-hmm. increase our manufacturing base. And they've got shanty towns and you know, fires all the time. Mm-hmm. And we need to protect our political legitimacy, right? So we're going to do some, you know, we're going to show that we can handle this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so let me give you some examples. So, um, in my book, Game of Mates, came out in 2017, I proposed that um, other states should copy the ACT in charging for the windfall gains from upzoning. So you have a property right. Your right says, I can build a detached house here. The planning system comes along and says, hey, you, got it. you can build a high-rise now. Now, that increases the value of that right. And so in the ACT, they, what they do is they say, okay... The planning system says you can do that, but your title says you doesn't. You have to go trade that title with me for one that is for a um, high-rise apartment. I'm going to charge you 75% of the value difference. Okay, I'm not just going to give it to you for free because someone drew a line on a map in the planning system. Mm-hmm. And so I propose that other states should do this because um, not only is it free money to landowners, it, it provides a big incentive to game the planning system and you know, nurture that game of mates and the favouritism. And then um, last year, the Victorian government announced they're going to implement a similar tax. Mm-hmm. So it took five years. Mm-hmm. But they did it. And their tax is watered down and all the rest and who knows. But, you know, there's some kind of change. The debate certainly has changed. Mm. So in terms of the Housing Development Board of Singapore and ha- how we take that idea to Australia, well, firstly, we have to get people talking about it. So my, my wish is that when a politician stands up and says, we're going to do this for housing, you know, all the journalists say, why haven't you copied Singapore yet? 
<laughs> yeah. Like quite literally, yeah. you keep doing these things. There's only one place in the world that gets the thing that you say you want. Yeah. Why aren't you doing it? That's what I want to get to. Mm. There's currently a petition in the ACT to pilot this. There are plenty of good sites because the ACT already has the sites, right? And the government, and they're just they're being silly. And I'm like, well, if you can prove it there, there's now an interest, for example, in housing um, key workers. So if you're a nurse, fireman, policeman, teacher, and you're working in Manly or some you know high expensive suburb of Sydney or in Melbourne, you're on the, essentially the average state salary for a teacher and you're meant to somehow live nearby the most expensive suburb in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a lot of talk now of states doing this type of thing for key workers, like key worker housing policy. Mm-hmm. So I think the trick is to get it happening somewhere. Mm-hmm. I think if the ACT did a project and all the teachers in the ACT got a sweet new apartment in a nice suburb down the road from their school mm. or a townhouse in the sudden two suburbs over, mm. like the teachers union would be like, hey, hang on a minute, why don't we all get that? We want that too, mm. right? The same thing will happen in, if New South Wales does it in their you know, eastern Sydney suburbs for nurses. The nurses union will be like, hang on a minute, we all want that. We either want that job in that fancy suburb that comes with the house or we all want the house too. Yeah. I know, um, for example, some regional towns, because of the high rents, you know, a lot of high-income people moved out to the regions and sort of out- outbid the locals. A lot of regional towns now are thinking, um, no one can work in our cafes and our shops anymore because we used to pay them not much because they could live in a cheap house, now they can't. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these regional councils own a lot of land and they might decide, well, bugger it. We're just going to build some houses and rent them cheap or give them to the people we want to stick around. Residents who are long-term residents who are leaving who will qualify. Mm. So, I, you know, that's my optimistic take of how this will go or could go. Mm. So it's a lot more politically feasible at the state level rather than the... I think it's easier at the federal level just because they've got the central bank, right? They've got, they don't have the funding debates that the states will okay. have. Yeah. Um, but I think proving it is not going to happen at the federal government. Okay. Proving it's going to happen at a council or a it state. It actually needs some form of pilot or yeah. to kind of pilot, show that right. it can work in this yeah. country. That's interesting because we were talking to um, Brendan Markey Taylor about okay. subsidiarity and he talked about, um, you know, like states trialling different types of policies and then other states can kind of mimic them if they're good or not. I think that's, yeah, that is one it's of the kind of the traditional arguments for federalism. That yeah, is, yeah, yeah, compa- yeah, competitive federalism. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, here's an example that's happening this week. Uh, in the Queensland budget, they announced extra, uh, so like a rising block tariff. The royalties are essentially just like income taxes on coal in Queensland. At a, up to $100, Aussie, it's 7%. Between 100 and 150 it's 15%. And what they did in the Queensland budget this week is they added additional higher tiers of like 20% and 25% royalties at $200 and $250, right? And so that's going to raise $8 billion, but it's only going to raise it during the boom. And I think it's quite reasonable, right? The boom's not going to last forever. There's no reason the public should get the same share as when they get in the bus. When the, mine, you know, the miners take risks, and I've got ideas about the government taking equity stakes to share the risk, but also share the upside. But I think New South Wales might copy this. If this sticks in Queensland, why wouldn't New South Wales do that? 
That's pretty common to think even with that. I know the um, UK government did a, hit a windfall tax on the North Sea oil producers um, mm. very recently, announced in their budget, yeah. pretty much for similar reasons. So, yeah, states copy other states and copy Singapore. Once that momentum happens and it sticks, it's very hard yeah. to reverse. And that's, yeah. I'll give you an example from Singapore. Maybe, maybe we should wrap up because I'm getting yeah. really distracted. But <laughs> I, was meeting, um, I was meeting some people from uh, Singapore in Sydney who are involved in HDB. And we were at a cafe on a rainy day in a laneway and the water was coming off the verandas of the building in the laneway and the pipe was just dumping in the middle of the lane. So everyone had to dodge this water spout. And, you know, that's not an interesting story by itself. But what they said, <laughs> what they said to me is they're like, I cannot believe this is happening. If this happened in Singapore... All the residents would be on the phone to HDB and their local member, and that would be fixed. Really? That no one would stand for it. So the mechanism there is like, here we go, well, it's their building, what can we do? Who's going to do something yeah, about it? Yeah, their property, their... In Singapore, it's like, HDB, that's me. We've got to fix this. Yeah, right. You know, go, go to your local politician. It's in the paper, mm. right? It's, and, and, and I was just like, whoa. That is a radical change. And that's what I said at the mm. beginning is they expect the government to spend money on them mm. and give them houses. Mm. Just like we expect to rock up a public hospital when we break our leg and get a bloody good x-ray and a cast. And so so radically, it's radically changed the political consciousness of Singaporeans with regards mm. to the housing, housing and property. And mm. Yeah, I'll give you another example. <coughs> uh, I was doing a, a talk about housing um, and I, this was before I proposed we copy Singapore, and I, it was really on my mind because I've been reading up a lot and I've been reaching out to people. And I said, look, we can solve housing because Singapore is a real country, and it's done. <laughs> so it's not like, you know, this is a mythology. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally, we just go somewhere that solved it and do what they do. Yeah. And, and I hadn't really, you know, nutted out the details at the time. One of the people in the audience came up to me and said, oh, funny you mentioned Singapore. I'm from Singapore. I'm a social worker. I've come to Australia because we don't have any homeless people. So I've had to come here to work with homeless people. What? And she's just like, I don't know why you don't give homeless people a house. Really? And I'm just like, uh, what? <laughs> like, I knew the system was very good and, you know, for the middle yeah. class... Um, everyone gets it and they just, he just said well, you know, we're out of work, work. <laughs> put a social worker out of work because your country's yeah. too affluent but let me, let me just be clear it's right. not like there aren't poor people no. and it's yeah, not like there's foreign workers no. it's just that they have a system mm. they have a system that gets these people looks after them accommodates them mm. yeah. you know gives them guidance it's, it's like it's so entrenched it's, it's normalised it's not like they have to rely on oh, there's a church group doing laundry for mm. homeless people. They're like, no, this is a system. This is like a military operation here. Mm. Whole country, if I see you on the street, I'm going to take you in, put you in a house and work out the hell what's going on. Because, mm. you know, we're building 20,000 houses a year. It's not like we're struggling to find mm. them. We're in the, you know, it's the biggest industry in the country. It's building houses for people. Mm. So we're going to put you in one. If you, if you are a low-income household, you can rent a studio 
for $80 a month in Singapore. So we're here talking about public housing. Oh, we're going to peg it to 20% of income. We're going to do all this. Just go on HDB. Yeah. Go find their low income rental. They'll give you a 10 year lease for like $7,000 for a poor elderly person who just needs somewhere to live. They'll go, oh, we'll give you that. And if you don't have any money, we'll just you know, put it on mm. your bill. So it's a lot more simplified. It's, mm. it's, it's systematized, it's simplified. Mm. It's, it's one, one sort of system and everyone is in it and it's evolved a lot, but you know, it's just, I don't know, yeah, we need that political mindset mm. change. Yeah. At the moment, it's like, oh, houses, what are we going to do? You know, we can build a bridge there. You can be homeless. If you break your leg, we'll put you up in a hospital. It costs $4,000 a night for you to stay. We definitely can't give you a, you know, a studio or dormitory somewhere yeah. and some kind of you know, treatment for whatever your addiction is and whatever's going on as well and help you out. But if you get sick, $4,000 a night, yeah, we'll do that instead, mm-hmm. right? So we've got this weird sort of mental block that, oh yeah, we can do that for them. We can do that for this person, but houses just oh, drop our hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I've done work in, um, for New South Wales. Um, what, what puzzles me is that public housing is one of the best investments the states have ever made. Mm. I'll give you another story. The New South Wales Land and Housing Corporation is essentially the asset manager for public housing stock in New South Wales. They were going to sell off their houses at Millers Point in Sydney. I'm not sure if you heard about that. So there was that serious building next to the Story Bridge, uh, the Sydney Harbour Bridge that mm-hmm. they sold off, and now it's no boutique, five million plus dollar apartments. Yeah. On the other side of the bridge is Millers Point, sold a bunch of workers' cottages that was public housing for 60 years mm-hmm. or, or longer. Mm-hmm. And the philosophy was, we're going to sell off high-value location public housing and build more elsewhere, which is fine. There were a few admin... They, they thought they'd raise $400 million from that sale of all those blocks. There were a few administrative delays, so it took three years longer than they planned. They raised $700 million. Literally, they made $300 million by waiting. Yeah, I was just about to... <laughs> three years. Yeah. And now they're in a rush to privatise all their other stuff. Yeah. I'm like, you make money owning this stuff and you keep crying poor. Yeah. What is going on? So their balance sheet in 2012 uh, was something like $32 billion. The value of the New South Wales public housing stock. Mm. What do you think it was in 2019? $54 billion. They made $22 billion from doing nothing. Right? So we're here going, oh, how do we pay for this? I'm like... Literally, people will throw money at you to buy a share of your public housing. Just rename it Housing Fund. New South Wales Housing Fund and sell shares to it. People give you money for it. Yeah. And you keep crying that it's, you know, oh, how do we do it? I've got to subsidize public housing. That only costs $800 million a year in subsidies because it's quite expensive to manage public housing. There's a lot of needy people, right? And a lot of the housing is old. But you can imagine if the housing stock was twice as big, you'd have made $40 billion over those seven years, right? Yeah. And if you expanded it to less needy people, the management cost per dwelling would go down as well. And all of a sudden, you're in this mindset of, oh, yeah, if private developers think it's a good idea to own housing in Australia, why don't governments think it's a good idea? Because I can tell you, uh, there's plenty of governments in the Middle East who think it's a good idea because their sovereign wealth funds are buying all the build-to-rent and funding build-to-rent projects in Australia. Mm. Right, so 
for example, the Smith Collective on the Gold Coast was the former Commonwealth Games Athletes Village. Mm. Queensland government, no, we can't do that, you know, uh, too expensive. We'll let the Abu Dhabi government fund it because they think they're going to make all this money. I'm like, they're making money out of it. You are giving up free money to let someone else's government make free money in your country what or your state. What is going on? So I feel like, yeah, there's this mental barrier and, and once we can overcome that, then maybe... Uh, we can talk about uh, a different way to tackle housing. Yeah. All right. So we did one last question before we go, which we always do um, it to for our guests is essentially to ask you a book that you recommend that our audience read and why. So just and and you can interpret that question however way you like. Well, since we're on housing, let me just look up what it's called because it's it's probably one of the more recent books that I've read, but. Um, it's called The Housing Problem in Australia, mm-hmm. written in 1947. <laughs> right? So if we think that we are somehow tackling this new problem that's never been done, uh, this was a bunch of key bureaucrats and, 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 and heads of political departments after the war getting together and saying, what the hell are we going to do about housing? And it's just, some of it could have been written yesterday, right? <laughs> Oh, the poor, you know, the market works really well for the top half, but the working class always gets screwed. Um, All these types of things, right? The private market never seems to get what we want. Um, They talk about material shortages, which at the time were due to the war, but now Mm. we've got the sort of supply chain issues. Mm. So just as a glimpse into the fact that housing's been a social issue for hundreds of years. Yeah. This is not new. There's been many, many things tried. Why don't we look at the ones that have worked and try that? Who's the book by, sorry? A funny story about this book. Someone who found me online was cleaning out their study and posted it to me. Some <laughs> retired... Walter Bunning. Walter Bunning, W-H-I-F-O-L-D, I-F-O-U-L-D. McCarryhan and uh, Luke. Sydney Luck. Sydney Luke. Luca. Sydney J. Luca. So this was a... <laughs> Winter Forum of the Australian Institute of Political Science at Wollongong in 1947. Niche. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty niche, but it goes into talking about... I can find you know, a copy of this. <laughs> I don't think you'll ever find a copy. I had to <laughs> sticky tape it all back together. Well, you can read Cam's uh, opinion piece about it in The Guardian from earlier this month. I did, I did mention sure. it in The Guardian, but I, I am going to write on my substack a bit of an overview of the things that are mentioned in 1947 that are almost mm. identical and, mm. and, and maybe you know, cut and paste the text from that book and the text from a recent mm-hmm. media article and just yeah. show that they are basically yeah. identical. So you follow my substack. That sounds good. What, what is your, just for our listeners, what is your substack? Mm. Fresheconomicthinking.substack.com yeah. So also subscribe to Cam's substack. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pillar Talk. Pillar Talk is published by Statecraft, the publications branch of the University of Queensland Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society. It is co-produced by Will Splatt and co-produced and edited by me, Tom Watson. Our music was created by Isaac Haynes.